0: friends as we continue to worship our god let's now turn attention to his word so that by the power of his spirit we might abound in hope that very hope that we have been singing about so if you have your bibles please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 1 corinthians chapter 15 First corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 to 19 Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, as we now look to your word and listen to the voice of our Savior, we pray that you would strengthen our faith and cause our hope to abound. Lord, we ask this because of our confidence in the Spirit's power to raise the dead. Give us life according to your word. Produce in us a joyful obedience that pleases you. May we know the immeasurable greatness of your resurrection power. As we put to death what is earthly in us. As we think and reason Christianly. And as we love one another. So that men would know that we belong to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, thinking is hard work. Thinking is hard work. Thinking requires the the gathering of information, the careful assessment and interpretation of facts, the use of reason and logic, and don't forget the resolve to act upon the conclusions. We need to think well in order to live well. A disordered life is often a reflection of a disordered mind. Uh, We instinctively know this. When someone does something extremely stupid or careless, what do we say? What was he thinking? Clearly, he was not. Beloved, Christians are called not just to think, but to think Christianly. We are called not just to use our minds, but to put on the mind of Christ. In one of his letters, Paul says this to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.7, he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Beloved, there are two reasons why we must think. One, we were created to be thinkers of all the wonderful creatures that God created There's only one creature who is made in his image, in his likeness, and that is man. Men and women were made to glorify God and to exercise loving dominion on the earth. But none of that was meant to happen outside of a loving relationship with God. We were created to to think and to talk so that we could commune with our maker and with one another. And so, part of what it means to be human is to think and to think like our maker. To think his thoughts after him. To allow his his words to shape and form our thinking. To allow his, his words to shape and form our identity and our community. Here's the second reason why we should think. The second reason is related to the first. We must think because thinking doesn't exist for itself. No, thinking exists so that we can love God with all our minds and love one another. But friends, as you know, sin and rebellion has corrupted our thinking. Because of the fall, because we have turned aside from the truthfulness of the authoritative word of God and have become independent thinkers, we now Put our trust in our own ability to understand ourselves and the world around us. So Paul describes this fallen mind in this way. Ephesians 4.18 It is a mind that is darkened in understanding. Brothers, sin affects our reasoning. It affects our logic, our ability to see inconsistencies and contradictions. Which is why the Bible describes sin sometimes as blindness. Blindness. It's a kind of mental fog in which the only thing you can see is is yourself. But because of the grace of God that has been revealed to us in the Word made flesh, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, God now opens our blind eyes and once again invites us to think His thoughts after Him. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, having our eyes opened... Through the word of the gospel, God now calls us to a life of Christian thinking. We are to grow in discernment, no longer conform to the patterns of godless worldly thinking, but to think Christianly and to grow in Christ-likeness. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He says this to the Corinthians because they were not thinking Christianly about their spiritual gifts. Instead of allowing scripture to regulate the use of their gifts in corporate worship, they had allowed cultural values to inform how they used their gifts and how they thought about their gifts. And as a result of such thinking, they chased after the gifts that were prominent, gifts that were culturally esteemed instead of desiring the gifts that were edifying to the body. Now there was something similar going on with how certain members understood the gospel. While these members professed to believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, they denied the resurrection of believers from the dead. And this was because the very idea of a bodily resurrection of persons was foolish in Corinthian society. Corinthian culture and Greek culture at large was influenced by a philosophy that taught a very low view of the body. Uh, They thought that what ultimately mattered was the spirit of your person. What you did with your body was of no great consequence or significance. Uh, Only your spirit matters because only your spirit will live forever. That's what they thought. And so it's possible that some Corinthian Christians might have been thinking like this. Oh, I'm a Christian now. I'm saved. My spiritual state in this life has improved. And when I die, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. What was Jim Reeves thinking? Clearly he wasn't, at least not very Christianly. And so these Corinthians would have thought of life after death as some sort of spiritual, immaterial existence. Definitely a higher state of existence than a bodily existence. Now, since these cultural ideas had had permeated their thinking, it had also affected their logic and reasoning. Now, this is important. Beloved, I don't think many Christians understand how much we need the truths of Scripture to simply think well. You see, a believer can only think well because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been made alive in Christ through His resurrection. God has opened our blind eyes and we can now reason well or think faithfully because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So think about what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 2.12. He writes, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So in Christ, we can now spiritually discern the truth, or to put it simply, we can now think Christianly. And friends, this too is an area of our sanctification or discipleship for which we need to trust in the gospel. Just because we are now believers does not mean that we don't need to grow in this area. We still need to deal with indwelling sin and its effects on our thinking. We need the regular refreshing breeze of the gospel to blow away the fogginess of worldly thinking. We need to trust in the gospel so that we can see clearly. And so this is why Paul, in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, reminds the Corinthians of the very foundation of their faith. He tells them what we should be telling each other every day. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, even sanctified in your thinking. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, Paul essentially says to these Corinthians, if you say you believe in the gospel, and Jesus' resurrection is crucial to the gospel, then the resurrection of believers from the dead is the necessary implication of his resurrection. That's how you should think. One follows from the other. And so what Paul does in this passage is what God does in Isaiah 1.18. He says, come, let's reason together. Let's reason together. Let's think about the implications of what you're saying. And so he helps them draw a map of their thinking process. He helps them draw a map of their thinking process. And he says, if you think like this, if you take this route, this is where it will take you. If you take this path in your mind, this is where you will end up. And so, friends, here are five implications of denying the resurrection of believers from the dead. Here are five serious consequences of denying the resurrection of believers from the dead. Number one, if you deny that, then Christ has not been raised. After talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ after pointing out how it's central to the gospel message as much as Jesus' death was, Paul says this, he takes their claims head on. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. Verse 12 of chapter 15. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Beloved, to proclaim Christ is to preach Him. And Paul has already made it clear that the resurrection of Jesus was preached by all the other apostles as well. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures in accordance with the Old Testament. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to many. This is what Paul had proclaimed to the Corinthians. This is what the apostles had proclaimed. This is the gospel that the Corinthians had believed. This is what they had received. This truth, this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is through faith in this gospel that they were being saved. That they were being sanctified. And Paul says, don't you see how contradictory your thoughts are? If Christ is proclaimed in the gospel as being raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Friends, what we have here is theological error. In Jesus' day and Paul's day, people arrived at this particular error in all kinds of ways. Take the Sadducees, for example. The Sadducees flat out denied the resurrection. Acts 23, verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. And do you remember what Jesus said about that kind of thinking? Matthew 22, verse 29. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures, nor the power of God. You don't know the Bible and you don't know theology. You are wrong. At the church in Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Philetus were spreading confusion among the members and they were upsetting their faith by saying, you remember, the resurrection has already happened. Second 2 Timothy 2.18, they were reducing the resurrection to a spiritual resurrection of the soul with no reference the bodily resurrection of believers in the future what did Paul say about them they have swerved they have drifted away from the truth of the gospel you know Paul describes this sort of thinking as a dullness of the mind a dullness of the mind friends disordered thinking is sin That's not my opinion. That's what Paul says in verse 34. Look down at verse 34. What does he say? Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Don't keep thinking like that. Don't be dull-minded. Brothers, when someone is not thinking rightly, When someone is in error, the most loving thing you can do is to point out that error. Point out the inconsistency. Point out the fallacy. Point out the contradiction. Do it out of love. Do it with utmost patience. How will your brother grow in Christ's likeness if he's putting his trust in the wrong thing? Aren't you the means by which your brother or sister ought to be built up? Isn't that why the Spirit has distributed gifts in the church? Does not Christ call us to speak the truth in love to one another so that we would no longer be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? Isn't the local church called the pillar and buttress of the truth? That's what we uphold? Paul says, how can you say that? You know, Today we avoid that sort of thing. Because our respective cultures have taught us, be nice. Beloved, niceness is not the same as biblical love. Niceness, according to culture, says don't stir the pot. Don't create an awkward situation. This conversation will strain your relationship. Brothers, your niceness will send this person to hell. If being nice prevents you from doing what Scripture tells you to do in James 5.19 to bring back someone who is wandering from the truth, if your niceness prevents you from obeying that passage, then you're not thinking Christianly and you're not walking in love. Just as the Corinthians failed to think rightly about the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of Christ, there are many Christians who fail to think rightly about many matters of the faith. Friends, drunken stupor of the kind that Paul's describing is all around us. It's all around us. For example, there are many churches in Sharjah that would say, we believe that in Christ Jesus we are all sons of God through faith. Oh, we believe Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus and yet some of those very same Indian members will say, we will never marry a believer from a different caste than ours. Huh. Beloved, if Christ has broken down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile by his blood, if He has made them members of His body, if they are one in Christ, if there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, then how can some of you say that a Christian's caste caste, a social, cultural category developed by sinful human beings? How can you say that it matters for a Christian marriage? But they might respond by saying, oh, Galatians 3.28, that might be fine for membership, but marriage, that's a different matter altogether. You foolish person. You foolish person. Don't you know that marriage is a picture of Christ and His church? What are you communicating about the gospel through your ideas? What does this sort of thinking proclaim about the gospel that you say you believed? Unless you believed in vain. When you allow cultural ideas to inform your thinking, not only does it empty the gospel of its saving power, it also steers your mind to this kind of futile thinking that the Lord saved you from. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You know, this implication is so obvious that it it is almost laughable. What's the claim? There is no resurrection from the dead. Oh, really? Oh, what was that thing that Jesus did on the third day after he died and was, was buried? What was that thing he did? Oh, he rose from the dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You cannot deny the resurrection from the dead without denying the gospel. Friends, you have to understand that this was the weight, the influence that culture had on the way these Corinthian Christians were reasoning. You know, in the book of Proverbs, we are told that the wise are those who fear the Lord and trust in His word. The foolish are the ones who trust in their own minds. Therefore, we are told in Proverbs 3, 5-6, to 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. He'll straighten out your thinking. Brothers, foolish patterns of thought set in when you turn away from the knowledge of God in the Scriptures. And you must understand that your knowledge of God Your doctrine of God as revealed in the scriptures will inform, it will affect how you understand, how you think about every other doctrine. Think about your conversion. How at some point when you heard the word of the gospel, suddenly something happened. It was as though light shone into your dark and dull soul and you became alive. And the Scriptures started to make sense to you for the very first time. Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. How is that possible? How is that even possible? How does that happen? It's possible because Genesis 1-3 tells us, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who spoke and brought light out of darkness in creation is able to do the same through the word of the gospel in new creation. You see that logic? Paul brings these two truths together in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, to deny the resurrection of believers from the dead is to not only deny the resurrection of Christ but it's ultimately a denial of God's power. It's a denial of God's power. Remember what Jesus said, if you deny the resurrection from the dead, you don't know your Bibles and you don't know the power of God. When Paul gave his defense before King Herod Agrippa, this is how he spoke about the resurrection. Acts 26 verses 6 to 8. Paul said, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's talking about resurrection hope. He's calling it a promise of God in the scriptures. I'm here because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. And then he says this. Why is it thought incredible? So hard to believe. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is that so hard to believe that God can do that? It's not. Not if you're thinking biblically. And you know this God. And you know what He has done in the past. Beloved, if you're struggling to understand some Christian doctrine, start with God. Ask yourself, What does my understanding of this doctrine reveal to me, tell me about how I understand God? And is my understanding of God right? Is it according to the scriptures? You remember how the Corinthians were going crazy in their services with all their tongue speaking and they were saying, oh, this is from God, this is from God. Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He is orderly. Here's the second implication of denying the resurrection of believers from the dead. Preaching becomes pointless. Preaching becomes pointless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Note the if and the then in this sentence. That grammatical construction inspired by the Holy Spirit is teaching us, is teaching us how to think. If, then, if a certain condition is met, then this will be the outcome. If A is not true, then B is the result. Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you have no good news. You have no good news. Why preach? Why preach? You have nothing to preach about. Our preaching, and by that he means all apostolic preaching, is pointless. It's in vain. It achieves nothing. And if it achieves nothing, then we can be absolutely sure that your faith is pointless. Friends, you have to understand that here, Paul is going to the very heart of the inconsistency. When the New Testament writers speak of the message of the cross or the work of Christ, they include by implication His resurrection. And this is because Jesus' resurrection is a public vindication of His person. A public vindication of His person. It's like a big billboard on the highway of human history declaring that Jesus is who He says He is. He is the Son of God who came into the world took on flesh, and died in the place of sinners to reconcile them to God. That's who He is. That's what He accomplished. We know that He accomplished this because He rose from the dead. Romans 1.4 says He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans four twenty five says He was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, And was raised for our justification. So you see the resurrection is not simply a happy ending to a tragic story. If you think like that then you won't see the connection between his resurrection and ours. Now what do I mean when I say that the resurrection was Jesus's vindication, his public vindication? To vindicate someone means to show them to be in the right, to prove that someone is not guilty when they have been accused of doing something wrong or illegal. Another word for this is to justify someone. Now, of course, when we think about justification, we usually think about our justification, our vindication. Those who repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus are justified. We're declared not guilty by faith. When Christ died, our sins were Imputed to him, and his righteousness was credited to our account. And when we hear the gospel and actually repent and believe that objective transaction that Jesus accomplished, that becomes a personal reality by faith through the Spirit. Romans 3. 23 to 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We understand that. We understand our justification. But when I say that Jesus was vindicated or justified by His resurrection, I mean that this was God publicly declaring Jesus to be not guilty. He was showing Him to be the Son of God who died Not for his sins, but for the sins of others. Friends, that's why he rose from the dead. Because death had no claim on him. You see, death only has a claim on sinners like you and me. The wages of sin is death. But because he died, the sinless Son of God died for your sins and mine, God vindicates him publicly. So you see, he had to rise, He had to rise. He conquered sin and death in our stead. Therefore, it was right for God to raise Him up from the dead. And because Jesus is who He says He is, because He rose from the dead, that resurrection sends out a warning siren. It sends out a warning siren to the rest of the world. Listen to Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How will he do that? He will do that by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all. This is God's way of saying, I promise you, This man will stand in judgment over you. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you know what that means? This means that the one who will render justice is a perfectly just person. Isn't that what people long for in a court of law? We want a righteous judge, don't we? Well, God gave us something infinitely better. He gave us a sinless savior, perfectly just. And the proof of that is he rose from the dead. The resurrection proves that He is just. And because He was vindicated, those who trust in Him are justified through faith. Because He lives, we believers who are united to Him through faith, we too are justified. So it's not just a happy ending. Your salvation, your justification, depends on His justification. It depends on His resurrection. And if that did not happen... We're not justified by grace through faith, then there's no good news to preach. I don't know why we're spending so much on rent in, the, in this hall. But why are we here? What is the point? Why do we preach week after week? There's no good news to preach, there's no gospel, there's no gospel. Our faith is useful, useless. And we're believing a lie. And that brings us to the third implication of denying the resurrection of believers from the dead. Implication number three, the apostles are liars. The apostles are liars. If Christ has not been raised... Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul says, you don't know what you're saying. We bore witness about God. The gospel is about what God has done in Christ for you. If He did not raise Jesus from the dead, then we have been going around bearing false witness about God. About God Himself, do you know what that means? We have been spreading lies about God that He raised Christ. That is, if what you say is true, that the dead are not raised. But that's not all. This would also make the Corinthians false witnesses. Because they also claim to believe in this gospel. Brothers, sometimes we miss the grim consequences. Because we don't think well. We miss the grim consequences of saying such a thing, of where exactly this path will take us. If the apostles are lying about this, get this, what else are they lying about? What else are they lying about? If the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, as Ephesians 2.20 says, then this is an attempt to blow up the foundation. And if you blow up the foundation, the whole structure starts to crumble. If the apostles are lying, which is an implication of the Corinthian denial of the resurrection, then what else is this, is the New Testament wrong about? Do you see how this claim undermines the trustworthiness of the word? Ultimately, it undermines God Himself. No, it is the Word, the very Word of God that has brought us new life through the Gospel and it is the Word that must inform our doctrine and our thinking. Not cultural ideas, not worldly philosophies, not political propaganda, not social codes, not even public health mandates. You know, if we accept what the transgender person says, if we accept their thinking that their identity is informed by their feelings and desires, if you accept that, you need to realize where that path takes you. You will be found to be misrepresenting God. Because what we will be saying essentially that the triune God of the universe made a mistake. The immutable, almighty, all-knowing God put a woman's soul in a man's body and he goofed up. Oops! And now it's up to human wisdom to set things right. Brothers, our thinking must be informed by the Word. It is God Himself who testified in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. All authority has been given to Him. He has risen. He has ascended to the Father's side. And He has sent us His Spirit. He has sent us His Spirit. Why does that matter? How should that inform our thinking? Well, Paul helps us in Romans eight eleven. He tells us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, this is another if-then statement, teaching you how to think Christianly. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Didn't we just sing about that? The power that raised Him from the grave now works in us to powerfully save. He frees our hearts to live His grace. Go tell of His goodness. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, how good it is to sing songs that help you think. That help you think. Brothers and sisters, the truths of the gospel tell us something about the God of the gospel. This message tells us something about his character, his purposes, his promises. The early church father Clement of Rome said this about the confidence and hope that we ought to have in God who resurrects the dead. What God does says something about who he is. Listen carefully. This is ancient wisdom from a faithful Christian thinker. Listen to what Clement says. Day and night... Declare to us a resurrection. Day and night declare to us a resurrection. The night sinks to sleep and the day rises. The day again departs and the night comes on. Let us behold the fruits of the earth. How the sowing of grain takes place. The sower goes forth. He casts it into the ground. And the seed being thus scattered, though though dry and naked, when it fell upon the earth is gradually dissolved, it dies. Then out of its dissolution, the mighty power of the providence of the Lord raises it up again. And from one seed, many arise and bring forth fruit. Having then this hope. Let our souls be bound to him who is faithful in his promises and just in his judgments. He who has commanded us not to lie shall much more himself not lie. Brothers and sisters, this is the God we worship. and He raised Christ Jesus from the dead. We can trust in his word. It is with this very confidence, this very hope that we today proclaim the same gospel that Christ died and he rose again to secure the forgiveness of our sins and to purify a people for his own possession a people who do not fear the grave because we know the one who walked out alive he's not dead he's risen our resurrection is tied up it's bound up with him Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life the resurrection is not just some academic concept Disconnected from the person of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five 25 and 26. Here's the fourth implication of denying the resurrection of the dead. Number four, we remain enslaved to our sins. Look at verses 16 to 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says, if you deny the resurrection of believers, then your faith is futile. It's hollow, fruitless, ineffectual, unprofitable. It's vain, useless, worthless. And here's why. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, He is the fountainhead, the first fruits of the harvest. Our resurrection is tied up to Him. If He did not rise, then here's the chilling reality. You are still in your sins. You are still in your sins You haven't been raised to life. You are dead in your sins and transgressions. You stand condemned before a holy God and you will face the full fury of His just wrath. You will perish. If He has not risen, He has not been vindicated. And if He has not been vindicated, you have not been justified. You have not been given new life. You still bear the guilt of every sin you have ever done, every sin you are currently engaged with, and every sin you will ever do. You will bear the full load of that guilt and you will go to the grave carrying that burden as a condemned man and you will suffer the fires of hell for all eternity without relief. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. Brothers, we have no reason to baptize anyone. Absolutely no reason to baptize anyone. Nor do we have any reason to celebrate the Lord's Supper. There would be no reason to rejoice in the cup of the new covenant. The new covenant that he inaugurated in his blood. If he did not rise and ascend and sit down at the right hand of the Father. We have no reason to come to the Lord's table with joy because our king has not conquered. He's still dead. And if he's still dead, you haven't received the Spirit of adoption. You have no right to call God your father. What right do you have? You are his enemy and he stands over you not in love but in wrath. And this means that God is not for you. He is against you. He is against you in every way and every day, every second. He is against you. And He works all things not for your good, but for your eternal destruction. But beloved, the good news is that He has risen. He is risen and we have been raised with Him to new life, we can set our minds on things above where Christ is, and we can confess our sins. We can examine our hearts because our fellowship is with the risen Christ. We can look forward to that great wedding supper of the Lamb when our faith will be turned to sight because He's risen. And because He is risen, the gospel calms, calms our troubled souls. Well, why do we behave? Why do we sometimes behave as though we have nothing to hope in? Nothing to glory in? Beloved, when Christ rose from the dead, the church rose from the dead. Now you and I were not alive when that happened. Nevertheless, God in His great power, objectively and mysteriously, not only actually saved us through His death, but also objectively and mysteriously raised us up with Him. This is the great Christian doctrine of our union with Christ. This is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. This union stretches from eternity past to eternity future. God did this. The, the, the roots of our union goes back all the way to election. Ephesians 1:4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because of this. Christ died for all those the Father gave Him. Ephesians 5.25 Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And then at the time of our conversion, when the Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, made us alive in real time, we were united to Him through faith. And it is through faith that the Spirit applies all the saving benefits of Jesus' work to us. Because of our union with Christ, when He died, we died. Our old self was crucified with Him and when He rose, we rose. Because Jesus is our representative head. He is our second Adam in whom we have been given eternal life. And because of His victory over sin and death, we have a new relationship with our sin. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus is. His victory is our victory. Through faith in Him we can now overcome sin. Sin cannot make you Obey it. Sin cannot make you obey it. Sin is no longer our master. Sin has no dominion over the saints of Jesus Christ because He is risen from the dead. He is alive and therefore our hope is a living hope. But friends, this hope not only gives us the assurance of pardon and comfort in our suffering, it lifts our eyes beyond the beckoning grave. Just as we sang about It lifts our eyes beyond the beckoning grave to a bright future. It lifts our eyes to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when our bodies will be raised and we will see his face. In our flesh, we will behold our God like Job spoke about. And this is only true if Jesus has been raised. And that brings us to the fifth and final implication Of denying the resurrection from the dead. Number five. If we do that. Then it means the dead have no future. The dead in Christ have no future. If Christ has not been raised. Look at verses 18 to 19. If Christ has not been raised. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ. Have perished. When Paul refers to the death of believers. He describes them as those who have fallen asleep now friends that is a wonderful phrase that is filled with hope that is a phrase that is informed by the promise of the resurrection if you're sleeping then it means that a time will come when you will awake that's why we use that phrase Jesus said in John 5 28 to 29 Do not marvel at this. Don't you just love that? He says, don't marvel. Don't be surprised by this. If you know who Jesus is and if you know the scriptures and if you know his power, you should expect this. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, this is why we can mourn with hope when Christians die. But if Christ has not been raised, death has won. Death has won. Every believer who has died will perish. They will be eternally condemned. But for the believer whose hope is grounded in the resurrection, death is merely the last suffering we will ever experience. When we die, our bodies will go to the grave But our spirits will be alive in the presence of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And when Christ returns, He will raise us from the dead, reunite us with our spirits, and give us new resurrection bodies. Beloved, instead of conforming our minds to the philosophies of our respective cultures, instead of contemplating the deceitfulness of human traditions, we must think according to the word of Christ. And this is how we ought to think about the dead in Christ. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 14 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4 14 to 18. This is how scripture teaches us to think about those who have died in Christ. Notice the logic. This is sanctified reasoning. This is how the Spirit teaches us to think through His words. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive... Who are left until the coming of the Lord. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel. With the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left. Will be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Beloved, these are hope-filled words. Because Christ has risen, not only those who have fallen asleep have a future. We too who are alive and waiting His return can be assured of new resurrection bodies. This is Paul's logic in Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, then we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Without this hope, we have no cause for joy or meaning in this life. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now it's hard to know what these Corinthians were thinking. After having their minds informed by cultural ideas about the body, did they think that believing in the gospel sort of spiritually blessed them only in this lifetime? Uh, did they reduce the gospel to the forgiveness of sins only? You know, whatever the case, Paul says to them if your hope is restricted to this present life and you have nothing to look forward to beyond the grave, then that's pathetic. In fact, that's the most lamentable position to be in. Of all the people in the world, Christians should be the people you should look at and feel the most sorry for. We are the most to be pitied, and here's why: because your lives are a delusion. You have no future. You're living a lie. Brothers, you have to remember that the Corinthians were not denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not denying that. No, they were denying the bodily resurrection of believers. And Paul is arguing that if you deny the bodily resurrection of believers, you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you deny the gospel. And if you deny the gospel, you have zero hope. And I don't know what you're so happy about. You're living a lie. Friend, if you don't know Christ, let me appeal to your conscience. Don't walk away from here today denying the gospel. Don't do it. Don't harden your heart and walk away from the truth. Turn away from your sins. Don't put your trust in your morality or goodness. That will not measure up before a perfect and holy judge. No, plead guilty. Plead guilty. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge your sins and call on the name of Jesus. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. This is the hope that we have been speaking about, and this hope can be yours. Listen to this promise of Jesus, John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him on the last day. I will raise Him on the last day. That's a promise. So turn to Christ and He will wash away all your sins. Friend, let me reason with you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. As for us, brothers and sisters, this scripturally sound connection between Jesus' resurrection and ours, this is the foundation of our hope. Christ alone. We are in Christ. Beloved, this is our hope in life and death. And He will keep us till the end. And that is a good enough reason to sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in our hope. We give you glory that Christ has been raised from the dead. And Lord, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. We thank you that he lives in us. That you have come and made your home with us. and that we can look forward to that day, to that place where Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, to prepare our home. Lord, we look forward to that day. Strengthen our faith. Cause our hope to abound so that we might labor in love and do it to the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.